Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Jade. And I'm Nadia. And today we're going to be talking about bariatric surgery, weight stigma and body image. We will be joined by two of CARA's in-house experts on the topic, trainee health psychologist Claire Hamlet and clinical psychologist and PhD researcher Dr Jen Heath. We're also going to be joined by Professor Rebecca Paul, a leading expert in weight bias and the Deputy Director of the world-renowned Rudd Centre for Food Policy and Obesity, which is based at the University of Connecticut. Right, it's basically impossible to write about weight bias or stigma without citing Rebecca's work. Completely. Do you reckon that'll be us one day, Jade? Hmm, certain of that. Uh, so anyway, for those of you that are coming, or still thinking about coming to our Appearance Matters 8 conference in June in Bath, Rebecca is one of our keynote speakers. So, this episode will give you a sneak preview of what to expect. Which reminds me, you can listen to all three of our keynote talks from our last conference on the podcast. Yes, they are totally worth listening to if you haven't already. Although, I must say, Nadia, there's nothing quite like listening to them in person. Absolutely. If you're there in person, you can ask questions, chat during social events, or even, if you're lucky, get a selfie. Um, I'm not sure our keynote speakers will appreciate you saying that, Nadia. Fair enough, although I want a selfie with Rebecca Paul. <laughs> anyway, a quick reminder that abstract submissions for poster and paper presentations at the conference closes on November 1st. So if you want to come to the conference, having a poster or paper to present really helps, especially when it comes to funding. Mm, 100%. For further info, please check the Appearance Matters Conference website, which we will link to in the episode description. Great. Let's get started. Yep. It's impossible to talk about bariatric or weight loss surgery without talking about weight, fat and how people who are larger in size are commonly perceived or treated in society. In many societies around the world, the word fat is a loaded and often derogatory term, especially when when it's applied to bodies. So much so, in fact, many of us go to great lengths to avoid using the word fat as a descriptor for someone else's body, particularly someone we care about, for fear of causing offence. This is totally understandable, as the word fat is frequently used as an insult, or as a target of self-loathing, or as something to be feared. Although, it's worth noting that many fat activists and body acceptance groups are reclaiming the word fat, and reframing it as a neutral adjective describing body size. We've spoken about weight stigma before on the podcast, on our social activism episode and our feminism and body image episode. Yeah, where we've discussed how people who have fat or larger bodies experience all sorts of prejudice and discrimination related to their size and appearance. And we're going to hear more about weight stigma later on in this episode with Professor Rebecca Paul. But as a quick recap, numerous studies have shown that people, and especially women, who have fat or larger bodies, are more likely to be perceived as lazy, less healthy, and to have poorer self-control and discipline than their peers with smaller, thinner bodies. Based on no other information than their size, FYI. Exactly. And in in addition, they are more likely to be bullied because of their size and face discrimination at work, at doctor's visits and in other public places. Right. And in the same way as being colourblind, i.e. refusing to acknowledge differences in experience based on skin colour, is unhelpful in conversations about race, refusing to talk about fat and weight stigma is unhelpful in a conversation about weight or size. So, with that in mind, and in line with many fat activists who have reclaimed the word fat, we want to start this episode in a place where the word fat is a neutral one, a descriptor without negative connotation or moral judgement. 
a really good illustration of this. There was an excellent article that I read in the New York Times magazine over the summer by Taffy Bradessa Ackner on the agony of being overweight in a culture that likes to pretend it only cares about health, not size. Quick side note, she also talks about Weight Watchers rebranding as well in the article, which is fascinating and totally spot on. But on the point of the word fat, she writes this. Fat people went from being called fat, which is mean, to being called overweight. A polite-seeming euphemism that either accidentally or not accidentally implies that there is a standard weight. To being called chubby or pleasingly plump. Just don't. To curvy. Which seems to imbue size with a sexuality, an optimism where it should just be sexually and emotionally neutral. And back to fat. Because it's only your judgement of fat people that made it a bad word in the first place. And maybe being fat isn't as bad as we've been made to believe. I thought that was made for this article. It illustrates the point really well. Yeah, definitely. And um, we'll link to the article in the show notes as well. On reading recommendations, I read Roxane Gay's book Hunger over the summer, and she gives a really candid account of what it's like living in her body. Let me read a tiny extract. When you're overweight, your body becomes a matter of public record in many respects. Your body is constantly and prominently on display. Fat, much like skin colour, is something you cannot hide no matter how dark the clothes you wear, or how diligently you avoid horizontal stripes. People are quick to offer statistics and information about the dangers of obesity, as if you're not only fat, but incredibly stupid, unaware and delusional about your body, and a world that is vigorously inhospitable to that body. You are your body, nothing more, and your body should, damn well, be less. Wow, that's pretty powerful. And again, very... um in line with this episode uh and i also need to read that yeah i highly recommend it and you can borrow my copy jade although i want it back okay (laughs) (laughs) roxanne gay is one of my faves um and she actually writes a little on bariatric surgery in the book so very relevant to this episode just one more thing for the record before we delve into the topic of bariatric surgery and body image is that a fat body is not necessarily a symbol of ill health just like a thin or slim body is not automatically symbolic of a healthy one Totally. And I think it's helpful to observe that we all have fat on our bodies, and the degree to which that varies is complex and can be the product of multiple factors such as genetics, hormone levels, stress, some medications, social economic status, and food availability, as well as lifestyle choices such as diet and exercise. Right. We tend to disproportionately focus on lifestyle when it comes to weight and body size. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a misconception about how controllable our weight actually is. While it's true that over the last few decades people in the West have got bigger in size, this is really a product of our changing environment. So sedentary jobs with long working hours, cheaply available fast food, um, much more than people becoming more greedy or lacking self-discipline. Then there's the whole point about our set point when it comes to weight, which is our body's homeostasis system to keep our weight stable. My last recommendation for this episode is um, Sandra Mook's 2014 TED Talk about why dieting doesn't usually work. She explains the set point issue really well. Great, I'm going to be busy after this, Nadia. (laughs) We'll link to it in the show notes as well. So there are times when it might be the case that too much body fat can be harmful to an individual's health. For example, it can increase the risk of heart problems or developing chronic illnesses like type 2 diabetes, or it can limit mobility. However, the key word here is individual. Right, and it's important to be critical when we read about some of this research related to this topic, as we know that weight bias in the medical profession is common, 
and some research conflates weight with more general fitness or health indicators. Right, you can't judge a person's health simply by looking at them or based on their BMI. 100%. I definitely know people who are larger in size and have perfect cholesterol, blood pressure, work out regularly. Mm, definitely. But in some cases, very large amounts of body fat may be harmful to health. And there is some research that shows that weight loss may help improve some specific health problems. In turn, some propose that bariatric surgery, also known as weight loss surgery, is an effective and cost-effective solution. Right, a Cochrane review of 22 randomised control trials of bariatric surgery found that it was more effective and cost-effective for the treatment of severe obesity than non-surgical measures for two years. And there is quite a lot of short-term research to show that conditions such as type 2 diabetes, asthma, hypertension, metabolic syndrome and obstructive sleep apnea can be resolved or reduced with the weight loss associated with bariatric surgery. In line with this, a group of surgeons are advocating for bariatric surgery to be more widely available to people in the UK. In a report written by bariatric surgeons in the British Medical Journal in 2016, authors suggested that the number of people receiving bariatric surgery on the NHS should rise from 6,000 a year to 50,000. Wow, that's a sharp increase. Yeah, and I think we need to be careful because the rationale is really based on short-term research, Plus, we need to remember the high prevalence of weight stigma in health professions. Um, we really ought to get to our guests, but before we do, let's just give a quick overview of bariatric surgery. Sure thing. So, bariatric surgery is a generic term applied to all surgical procedures designed to achieve weight loss. And approximately 80% of patients undergoing bariatric surgery are female. Right, bariatric surgery procedures include a gastric band, which is a reversible procedure where an adjustable band is placed around the stomach, reducing the available space for food, which means people will feel fuller, quicker, and thus eat less. Then there's a gastric bypass. Here, the top part of the stomach is joined to the small intestine, so fewer calories are absorbed from food. And then the last most common bariatric surgery procedure is a sleeve gastrectomy. Where most of the stomach is removed, so like the case of a gastric band, a person can't eat as much as they could before and will feel fuller sooner. FYI, this procedure is colloquially known as having your stomach stapled and is the most commonly used procedure in the UK. Although some critics argue that bariatric surgery is one of the only surgeries that mutilates an otherwise healthy organ because you're irreversibly removing some of the person's stomach. On a quick side note, surgical cosmetic procedures like liposuction are not considered a type of bariatric surgery as they're not designed as a weight loss tool um, and are not associated with any physical health benefits. Right, let's move on to talk briefly about who gets bariatric surgery and what are the risks. So the UK National Health Service, or the NHS, offer weight loss surgery based on criteria provided by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE guidelines. NICE recommends bariatric surgery for an individual who meets all these following criteria. Number one, has a body mass index, or BMI, of 40 or more, or a BMI between 35 to 40, and have a serious health condition that might improve with weight loss, such as type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. Number two, other non-surgical weight loss methods have been tried and proved unsuccessful. Number three, is healthy enough to have surgery under general anaesthetic. And number four, is or will be receiving treatment from a specialist weight loss team. Slight side note, there's some contention on the centrality of BMI as a criterion, as BMI is not a comprehensive and accurate measure of health. So think rugby players or athletes who have high BMIs but are still super active and healthy. 
Right. As well as being available on the NHS based on the NICE criteria, it's also possible to have bariatric surgery privately, where in some cases, needs assessments may be more lax. BMI thresholds may be lower and aftercare may be non-existent. Right, which is super concerning, right? So in preparation for this episode, I read about gastric balloons, a non-surgical procedure offered in private practice. So this is where a silicone balloon is inserted into the stomach using an endoscope and filled with a saline solution, which reduces the room for food and therefore making people feel fuller quicker as well. Yeah, and this procedure was all over the UK news back in May of this year, following a European obesity conference in Portugal, and was touted as the next big thing um, in obesity treatment. And I've got a number of thoughts about this, but what particularly worries me is that this procedure is offered in private clinics to people who have a BMI of 27 and above. Now, I know I said before that I don't think BMI is an accurate measure of health, but however you look at it, this feels extreme and exploitative to me. You know, if we do take the BMI criteria, BMI of 27 is just over, you know, just within the overweight category. It's not even at the higher end. Mm. Right, and it's important to be aware that bariatric surgery procedures involve a number of serious risks to health, such as internal bleeding, malnutrition, gallstones, infections, and so forth. Some research shows that up to 17% of patients will have complications, which can include nutrition deficiencies, infections, and intestinal blockages. Therefore, careful ethical considerations must be made to see whether the benefits of the surgery substantially outweigh the risks for the individual. 100%. And I was shocked to discover that bariatric surgery is legally allowed to be performed on children, despite, as noted in a 2010 publication in The Lancet by Han and colleagues, um, the risks of bariatric surgery are considerable and its long-term safety and efficacy in children remains largely unknown. So this all feels a bit of an ethical minefield to me. And again, I have quite a few thoughts here, but um, I think it's a good time for our first guest. Yeah, definitely. So first up, we have Dr Jan Heath a clinical psychologist and PhD researcher at CAR. Yes, definitely. First up, we have Dr. Jen Heath, a clinical psychologist and PhD researcher at CAR. You may remember her from our episode on burns and appearance, where she spoke about working as a clinical psychologist in the specialist burns unit, as well as talking about her PhD on peer support for parents with a child who has a burn injury. We've got Jen back on the podcast today because she also has experience working in a bariatric surgery clinic in Sheffield, and her current clinical work is in a weight management slash bariatric surgery clinic here in the southwest. Hi Jen, great to have you back on the podcast. Hi Nadia. So your PhD research is on burns while you're currently working in bariatric surgery as a clinical psychologist. Yeah. So how do your two research areas connect? So during my training, I became interested in appearance-altering conditions. So when I'm working with burns, I see people whose appearance might have been permanently changed as a result of a traumatic experience. Whereas in bariatric surgery services, I'm working with people whose appearance might be different to the majority of individuals in society due to their weight. Some of the people I work with might have experienced an earlier trauma, which has led to them using food to cope with how that has made them feel, and this has ultimately affected their appearance. It's also the case that following significant weight loss, a person might still have appearance concerns due to excess skin, but we can come on to that later. Mm -hmm. So although the two specialties I work in seem very different, I can often use similar techniques to help people to cope with life events or with trauma or become more accepting of their appearance. Um, And in bariatric services, that might even be before they consider surgery. I might also help them cope with maybe unintended consequences that bariatric surgery might have had. 
Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Can you tell me why we need clinical psychologists in bariatric surgery services? I think they're really important. Um, I think some people uh, might gain weight because of the problems in their past, such as depression, eating disorders, or physical or maybe sexual abuse. People with these problems have often been referred to me within a bariatric surgery service. These problems can lead to people comfort eating or emotional eating. Um, Depression is really common in people who are obese as well. People can become depressed or anxious because they feel unhappy about the way they look, they feel bad about themselves or because how other people might treat them. Um, People who are obese also often feel discriminated against or stigmatised because of their weight and eating disorders are also quite common. Uh, People with obesity can suffer with bulimia or binge eating um, and also night eating syndrome which is Mm -hmm. binge eating at night, that's also common. Um, as is agoraphobia, because when people who are obese go outside, they can feel that people are staring at them and feel that they're stigmatised. Um, so most people who are overweight will report like sometimes in their lives where they felt discriminated against. People can be rude, they can be mean, stare, and they can also bully them. Um, and this can result in obese people being scared to leave their own home, which can then further contribute to anxiety and depression. So bariatric surgery is just a tool that can help people lose weight. It doesn't solve any of these emotional Mm -hmm. or psychological problems. So if food has become a coping mechanism for emotional issues, then restricting what people are able to eat still leaves them struggling with these stresses, the same issues that were there before. So psychologists are going to be a really important part of a team when it comes to assessing people's suitability for surgery, their motivations to make significant and permanent changes to their lifestyle, preparing for these changes and also helping people who might have difficulties following surgery. Yeah, thanks Jen, that was great. I really like the point about bariatric surgery doesn't solve emotional and psychological problems and that's where the psychologist comes in. Mm -hmm. So when do psychologists get involved with a patient's treatment? So psychologists are involved um, from the pre-surgery assessments and then if or whenever they're needed beyond that. So it could be for pre-surgery preparatory work or decision-making. Or, for example, later on, if patients are still struggling with weight loss post-surgery or if patients have appearance concerns following their surgery due to issues like excess skin. In the case of the pre-surgery assessments, a psychologist will want to see that a person has a good understanding of the procedure that they want to undergo and that the expected outcomes and potential risks are also understood. Um, I'd also want to ensure that people have got appropriate expectations, are able uh, prior to their surgery to follow a regular balanced diet and also have insight into their eating patterns and also maybe the reasons why they gained weight as well. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So when you assess suitability of treatment, is it common to include body image in that assessment? So before surgery, patients will be assessed usually by a multidisciplinary team. It's also known as an MDT. They'll be asked questions about their weight, along with how long they've been overweight and why they think this is. They'll be asked about their dietary habits and how these might have contributed to weight gain. Their general health and medical problems will also be covered, as well as their thoughts about the surgery, how they imagine it might help them, what their preferred procedure, bariatric procedure mm-hmm. might be. Um, the team will also look at a person's motivation and adherence to treatment so far within the team. So although uh, body image isn't a specific topic that's generally brought up, especially not where I've worked anyway, Mm -hmm. it does invariably come up in the conversations about a person's weight when they're talking about their weight, what it's been like to live, Mm -hmm. um, their life and about their dieting history as well. 
Great, that's encouraging to hear all of those different facets of the assessment. So how about after the surgery has taken place? What's the psychologist's role then? So following surgery, a psychologist's role is likely to be for intervention when somebody's struggling to lose weight or when somebody who's initially lost weight has then started to regain it again. Psychologists can also help when a person has got appearance or body image concerns regarding loose skin um, or excess skin after they've lost weight. Right, and can you tell me a little bit more about the excess skin piece? Because I understand it's something that people struggle with after losing a significant amount of weight. Yeah. There was um, a This American Life episode called Tell Me I'm Fat, where someone spoke about it, not following bariatric surgery, but following significant weight loss, and that's something mm. that was uh, really interesting. Yeah, um, so it's something that's common. It's not a complication of surgery, but it is often problematic for people who've either had bariatric surgery or have lost a significant amount of weight. So the more weight a person loses, the higher the chances of getting loose skin become. Some people say that regular exercise, massage or moisturising can help, but this certainly doesn't work for everyone. In, in most cases, there's nothing that can be done other than plastic surgery to remove the skin. Um, but it is really unlikely in the current um, climate of the NHS that people will be able to get NHS-funded skin removal revision surgery. And this is because it doesn't usually cause health problems for people. Um, it's considered a cosmetic procedure. Mm-hmm. So although we as psychologists know that it can contribute to psychological problems, it isn't treated by the NHS mm-hmm. because it's, it's a cosmetic procedure. So in most cases, if a person wants to have um, skin revision surgery, they'll have to pay for it privately. But the person that's pursuing that should be aware that it, it will result in significant scarring where the skin has been removed. That's very interesting and important to know about the scarring piece. Um, I'll link to that This American Life episode in our show notes. Great. It's interesting. I think you'd like it. Um, so tell me, how long on average would a, a psychologist or might a psychologist uh, work with a patient? So this is a really hard question to answer because different services are going to have different policies. So sure. after all bariatric surgery procedures, um, follow-up should be lifelong. So usually for the first two years, follow-up is by the bariatric team and afterwards it will be with the GP. Within my role, um, I would work with patients who have been treated by a bariatric service, um, usually for six sessions, so maybe one hour a week for six weeks, sometimes mm-hmm. for 12 sessions before I discharge them. Um, if problems persisted, they could be re-referred um, to the service, but longer work wasn't possible just due to the sheer number of referrals that we received and the limited psychology provision within the service. Um, It is also possible for GPs to refer patients um, for support outside of the bariatric service as well. Um, They might find that helpful if they can access services to help with maybe depression or anxiety, like I spoke about earlier, um, through there. Waiting times might be shorter, Mm -hmm. but again, they could be longer as well because often services are under-resourced and there's high demand for them. Yeah, absolutely. So, last question. In your experience, does bariatric surgery help patients long-term? In my experience, for the majority of patients who are undergoing the procedure or any one of the procedures, it is helpful in facilitating their weight loss and maintaining it in the long-term. But I think it's so important to remember that surgery is a tool, and it's an effective tool, but it is still a tool mm-hmm. nonetheless. It's not right for everyone, and it's certainly not a magic cure. 
Yeah. It requires really long-term lifestyle changes, like permanent lifestyle changes. And it's also really important to remember that it's not going to solve any of those problems that might have prompted weight gain initially. Um, so a person considering surgery should address these issues before the surgery is offered to them. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point to end on. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. No problem. So that was Jen talking to Nadia. And next, to delve deeper into how body image fits into the conversation, we have Claire Hamlet, a trainee health psychologist at CAR who specialises in the area of bariatric surgery and body image. Hi Claire, thanks for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. This is your podcast debut, right? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. So, um, first question, I know you're just about to publish a systematic review on the impact of bariatric surgery on body image, and can you summarise what you found? Okay, so um, body image dissatisfaction is often cited as a key reason people seek bariatric surgery, yet little is known about the effects the procedure can have on body image. Mm. So that's what this review aimed to find. Surprisingly, I only found 10 papers have actually considered measuring body image anyway, before and after bariatric surgery, and these all reported significant improvements on the measures of body image they used. However, they all measure different aspects of body image, mm. so the review cannot determine whether bariatric surgery directly improved body image or whether there was some other factor at play. So most of them did not explore the direct relationship. So there was also a lack of long-term follow-up, by that I mean beyond 12 months, so it cannot be determined if the improvement in body image seen initially during the rapid weight loss period was maintained. Yeah, so there's clearly a lack in this research area. Um, so what do you think might happen to body image after 12 months in the long term then? Well, I'm not totally sure, but um, patients do normally experience quite rapid weight loss, especially in the first 12 months, and then it tends to slow down, and sometimes um, it's reported that it's actually regained. So um, many patients can be left with loose skin, so I suspect that that could negatively impact on body image. So you're currently working on your thesis, which is investigating the acceptance of bariatric surgery as a weight loss treatment and people's attitudes towards it. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Okay, so figures over the last couple of years have indicated that in the UK, the number of people actually undergoing bariatric surgery is declining, but little research has actually understood why. Mm. And also the precursors to people deciding to undergo the procedure are also poorly understood. So my research is going to explore some of the factors potentially influencing a person's acceptance of bariatric surgery in those that are experiencing obesity. For example, I'm going to look at how much they believe their health is under their control and look at their body image for that, that influence. And it'll also ask for their reasons for rejecting or accepting bariatric surgery. And it's hoped that that will lead to a better understanding of attitudes towards the procedure in the UK. That sounds like really interesting research and it's going to really bridge the gap there yeah, in yeah. the lack of um, research that's out there so far. So why do you think bariatric surgery can be controversial then? Well, I think that some of that might be down to public attitudes. So research suggests that obesity and weight loss is viewed by society as a personal responsibility yeah. and that it can be easily be reversed and that can promote weight discrimination and stigma. And people often think that those who lose weight through bariatric surgery are lazier and less responsible for their weight loss. Mm. But in fact, it involves a lot of effort on behalf of the patient after the procedure to ensure that it's successful, particularly in terms of changing their behaviour and their habits around diet and exercise. Mm. And maybe in the UK, this stigma might be made worse by the fact the procedure is usually funded by the NHS. Mm. Really interesting. So last question. 
I know you're training to be a health psychologist. Can you explain what the difference is between a health psychologist and a clinical psychologist? We get asked this one a lot, and there are some (laughs) overlaps. But in essence, a clinical psychologist works more with people experiencing mental health issues, so those with clinical depression or obsessive compulsive disorder, etc. Whereas a health psychologist would use their knowledge of psychology, health and behaviour change techniques to promote general well-being and understand physical illness, whether that's on a one-to-one level or on a larger scale, for example, through um, public health campaigns. Thanks for clarifying that, Claire. Um, And (laughs) thanks for joining us. It's been great having you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so on to our final guest. We have Professor Rebecca Poole, Deputy Director of the Rudd Centre for Food Policy and Obesity. So we started this episode talking about weight bias and bariatric surgery potentially might be um, a pathway for some individuals, but it does nothing to combat um, the stigma that people face. And we really wanted Rebecca to come onto the podcast to talk about how we can change societal attitudes um, by tackling weight bias. Exactly. Dr. Paul received her PhD in clinical psychology from Yale University and today is a leading expert in the field of weight bias and her research is routinely publicised in national and international media. She has conducted research on weight stigma for over 16 years and has over 100 publications on topics including weight-based bullying in youth, the impact of weight stigma on emotional and physical health, weight stigma in healthcare and the media, and interventions and policy strategies to reduce weight-based bullying and discrimination. Rebecca will be joining us in June as one of our esteemed keynote speakers at our Appearance Matters 8 conference. Hi Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. I'm really excited to be speaking with you and I'm thrilled that you're coming to our Appearance Matters 8 conference next June as one of our keynote speakers. This episode is on bariatric surgery and body image, and I'm really curious to know what your take is on the topic. Well, thanks very much for uh, having me today. And um, yeah, you know, um, I think that bariatric surgery really has important implications for body image and and vice versa, I think, both before and after the surgery. Um, We know that negative body image can be one of the key reasons that people initially seek weight loss surgery as they hope that significant weight loss will change the way that their bodies look. And we know from research that that body image does improve within six months after surgery for some people and then remains over time. For other people, though, negative body image can persist even after they achieve significant weight loss. And there's some research that has found that bariatric surgery candidates with kind of emotional distress like self-doubt or low self-esteem are actually more likely to report body image concerns after bariatric surgery. So, you know, I think it's complex, and I think whether or not someone has improved body image following surgery really probably depends on a number of factors, many of which are at the individual level. Great. And so I know a big part of your work is on weight stigma. So how do you think weight stigma might affect the body image of individuals who might be considering bariatric surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we know from studies that candidates for bariatric surgery report um, having different negative psychological health consequences from weight stigma, uh, including body dissatisfaction. And so you know, certainly prior to surgery, stigma being reasons for why people are 
are, are seeking surgery in the first place. And, and some research has found exactly that, that stigma is sometimes a major reason why people are, are seeking weight loss surgery because they're hoping that, you know, the surgery will alleviate their stigmatized identity, that they can escape, you know, this stigmatized status. And we also know that, that stigma can potentially complicate health for people who are going through weight loss surgery. So, for example, um, I know that, that weight loss surgery folks report stigma are much more likely to be diagnosed with things like binge eating disorder. Um, and, and we know from evidence that stigma can actually impact surgery outcomes. And that seems to be, I think, especially true for internalized stigma, which is really the extent that a person blames themselves for stigma and applies negative stereotypes to themselves. And there have been studies done showing that women who underwent bariatric surgery, that those who had more internalized weight bias before surgery actually had much less weight loss one year after surgery. So, you know, I think that stigma plays a role here. It may be a barrier to some outcomes related to surgery and that it can really also interfere with body image before and after surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. So I want to shift on to your work uh, more directly. So what are your biggest priorities at the moment? What are you working on? Well, one of my priorities right now is really trying to address the issue of weight stigma in children and adolescents. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our studies have found that weight-based bullying is, is really among the most prevalent reasons that youth are teased and bullied. And we have found that in national studies and in international studies, the problem is that this is an issue that is, is really not being adequately addressed. Weight-based bullying is often absent in school-based curriculum to you know, address bullying issues in, in youth. Um, there are really very few resources available to parents and families who are struggling with this. And so we're collecting data right now with several hundred adolescents who are attending a weight loss camp. And we're trying to better understand how these kids are coping with weight-based teasing and bullying and what kind of support they most need from from parents and other supportive adults. So that's one key issue I'm working on. Another new research area that I'm involved in is sexual minority youth because there really has been very little research in this area, but it's very important because we see that sexual minority children and adolescents are really struggling with body image and weight-related issues and it's important for us to understand the lives of children who have multiple stigmatized identities, like sexual orientation and body weight. So we're, we're looking at how weight-based bullying is different health behaviors in this population, um, kind of, again, with the goal of trying to inform more supportive interventions for these youth. Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. So... I'm always really interested in what has shaped people's journeys throughout their career. So has there been anything in your career to date that's surprised you or significantly changed your thinking about something in terms of your work? Well, you know, I think when it comes to weight stigma, that one of the things that really continues to be a challenge and and really very humbling about trying to study this topic is how resistant this form of stigma is to change. Um, you know, there are hundreds of studies that are now documenting weight stigma in multiple societal settings, but 
you know, fewer studies have tested different strategies to reduce weight bias, and, and those that have really kind of show mixed results at best. And so we just don't know yet how to effectively eliminate this bias or how to reduce it kind of long term. And my feeling is certainly that we need multiple strategies in multiple settings, um, that this is kind of really about shifting broader societal attitudes about body weight and what a thin obsessed society we live in, that this really is not an easy task. And so, you know, I, I think as I look back, I've certainly seen progress in the last 15 years or so that I've been in this field um, in terms of more awareness and recognition and discussion about weight bias, but we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd really like to see kind of more research shift to trying to study effective and feasible options for this problem. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so my final question is, so you're coming to give a keynote presentation at our Appearance Matters 8 conference, and we're all very excited. Can you give us a little teaser about what you're going to be talking about in the keynote? Sure, yes, I'm, I'm very excited to be coming um, to the conference. And I think one of the key issues that I'm going to talk about is um, how to use policy as a strategy to try to address uh, weight-related bullying and discrimination. My team has been doing research in this area for about seven years now, and we are seeing um, increasing and very substantial public support for different types of legal measures that can be taken to really um, try to make it illegal to discriminate on the basis of weight or you know, provide more protection for children who are bullied at school because of their weight. I really think that policy is an important piece of the puzzle for finding ways to address weight stigma. So I'm going to be talking about some recent evidence from our studies on this issue and some potential next steps for moving policies forward to try to reduce weight stigma. Wow, I can't wait. That sounds really powerful and really useful keynote that people can take something away from that as well. So that's it from me. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and look forward to seeing you in June. Thanks so much. I look forward to it as well. So that's it for this episode on Appearance Matters, the podcast. Remember, if you've enjoyed this episode, to share it with friends, colleagues, students, etc. And for those of you who are thinking of submitting to present a paper or poster at our international conference next June, abstract deadlines are November 1st. So no time to lose, people. A big thank you to our guests, Professor Rebecca Paul, Dr. Jen Heath and Claire Hamlet, And join us next time where we'll be talking about how focusing on functionality can improve our body image. Excellent.